This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we're going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And on today's show, Carol, nuclear war may be something we worried about when we were kids. Apparently, we should still be worrying about it. Yeah, who would have thought? And who would have thought that there actually would be some big outperformers when it comes to hedge funds? Ray Dalio was among them. He had a really good year in 2018 compared to the rest of the pack, but that didn't stop a small county in California from pulling some of its investment money. Yeah, not so impressed. We also caught up with Brad Katsuyama, one of our favorites. He is the founder of IEX, taking the bold step of really continuing to go after the big stock exchanges. to the SEC. He tells us all about it. Plus a detailed account of how Carlos Ghosn ended up behind bars. He's been there for about two months now. It is this week's cover story. And what I love about this story, Jason, is I feel like for the first time, we're getting a lot of details about what's been going on behind the scenes. It's incredibly complicated and very unclear uh, where it goes from here. But first, early in the week, the U.S. ramped up its battle with Huawei. So this past week kicked off with the U.S. really doubling down, Jason, on China's largest technology company. We're talking about Huawei, the U.S. Justice Department filing criminal charges against the company. So let's get into this story. Well, let's get into it because you and I were sitting in our studio watching yes. all this unfold down at the Justice Department. And the optics were pretty amazing. Yeah. Multiple cabinet level officials, the acting U.S. Attorney General laying out a very strong case. Jeff Muskus uh, is here with us to help us understand the enormity of this and maybe where it goes from here. So tell us what happened. Sure. Well, the the, uh, the indictments handed down in uh, in Brooklyn and then uh, to some degree in, in Washington State as well um, tie together what are really a lot of, of old charges um, to varying degrees, stuff that's been whispered about in Washington, in some cases prosecuted in other courts in the U.S. Uh, over the last decade or so. Um, the indictment uh, unsealed in Brooklyn uh, charges uh, Huawei, two affiliated companies, uh, and personally, it's chief financial officer uh, Meng uh, Wanzhou with uh, 13 counts of uh, assorted bank and wire fraud, and as well as uh, criminal conspiracy uh, in doing business with Iran in violations. And, of and she's the daughter of the founder, correct? That's and right. She's the the individual who's being detained in Canada as upon the U.S. requesting Canada to do so. Yeah, as of December first. Um, she's wound up being um, released from Canadian custody, but is due back in in court in Vancouver in early February. And so this is, of course, all happening against the backdrop of, <laughs> shall we say, a tense time in U.S.-China relations right. around trade and specifically around intellectual property. I mean, that was one of the things that really yeah. jumped out to us as we were looking at this. And I know you followed this closely as well. What's really at stake here? Because this is bigger than one government going after one company, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The uh, As we sort of saw when uh, Wing was arrested in Canada in December, um, you know, President Trump more, more or less admitted as much that um, you know she's sort of a, a bargaining chip as far as he was concerned, as was Huawei's larger treatment in, in the trade war, uh, the the, uh, the developing with China. Um, but it, it's a little more complicated than that too. What you're seeing uh, in the the charges uh, laid down by federal prosecutors is not just that you know they're they're circulating a lot of old complaints about. Um, Huawei's business practices from, uh, you know, members of Congress, the intelligence agencies and elsewhere, uh, but that uh, Huawei is really, um, you know, the because it's the front runner in China's efforts to um, build 5G networking equipment faster right. than uh, the U.S. and uh, other uh, Western companies can, uh, that it's become a real, um, uh, seen as a significant threat among U.S. intelligence agencies and, and businesses as far as what the next internet is going to look like. You know, it's interesting to kind of watch what's happening with technology around the globe, right? You know, more protection in terms of privacy, and I feel like there's a lot more oversight and we talked about kind of at the end of last year, expecting more oversight, whether it's search and social media companies. But I feel like technology overall, I am curious, this was the U.S. Justice Department taking this action. That's right. What kind of support do they have from uh, from some of their allies or other countries around the globe? Well, certainly since December, uh, at least out in the open, but uh, for, for a while before that, the U.S. has been pressing its allies both to um, to commit to supporting it generally in this matter and also to committing to keep Huawei equipment both out of their their government operations generally, as the U.S. has done for years now, and uh, increasingly to keep them out of their wireless networks more broadly, which is a commitment that um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and a handful of other countries have made in the last uh, couple of weeks. 
So where does it go from here? Because obviously it, it involves to some extent the CFO, you know, potentially being extradited uh, to the United States. But this is, you know, affecting the largest tech company uh, in China. What, where does it go from here? Uh, it's a great question. There's a lot of, of fallout clearly still to come. Um, it, it's a little too early to say whether uh, the U.S. is going to try to, uh, you know, levy the kind of essential corporate death penalty that uh, fellow uh, Chinese phone maker and infrastructure companies ETE faced last summer. Uh, I would say and ultimately dodged. That's right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, used as sort of a, a bargaining chip yeah. in, in trade war negotiation. But isn't ZTE also being? Didn't one of the officials say that they are also still being looked at too? They're certainly not out of the woods yet. That's right. true. I also do wonder, as you talked about kind of the backdrop, the bigger, broader backdrop, I do wonder how fascinating it is that this came out in a week where President Trump is meeting with the most senior official uh, when it comes to trade negotiations between the United States and right. China. Like, it's just fascinating to have kind of these two very high profile, po- high profile things going on at the same time. Yeah, it's immediately sent screaming anybody who was hoping that uh, this week's negotiations with Xi's top economic aide in Washington were going to cool down the trade war permanently, for sure. That's technology editor Jeff Muskus. And Carol, I got to say, talk about a complicated story with a lot of crosswinds. It just reminds you how interconnected China and the U.S. are far beyond just the political rhetoric. And it's amazing this week to have the Department of Justice come out against Huawei specifically. And at the same time, you've got high level U.S.-China trade talks going on. It is complicated. So safe to say this week's remarks in the magazine caught me a little bit off guard. It has to do with a serious global issue that in many ways puts all others to shame, and that is the threat of nuclear war, something that you may have thought was a worry of the past. Think again, as economics editor Peter Coy writes this week. Peter, why are you bringing it up? Uh, What happened is that after the 1980s, when there was a real surge in public concern about nuclear warfare, it kind of faded from view. The Soviet Union collapsed. And it was Russia was not perceived as so much of a threat. But in recent years, we've gone backwards in several ways. First of all, and we go back to the 80s, though, because I think about Reagan. Yeah. Right. And Gorbachev. I mean, right. this was a big deal. And well, kind of actually, yeah, I'm, I'm actually um, let's stop there for a second, because a very important treaty was signed. Right. In the 80s. And that was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And that banned uh, missiles, whether conventional or nuclear, between with a range of 500 to um, 5,000 kilometers, mm-hmm. which is 300 to 3,000 miles, roughly. And um, that uh, really did kind of make more peace in Europe. Because that was the place where there was – Europe was deathly afraid that the Soviet Union right. and the United States would make Europe their battleground and that – uh, They'd be caught in the middle of it all. They right? would be exactly, and yeah. there were massive street protests, and it ended when Reagan and Gorbachev signed this treaty. It was a major step away from the brink of nuclear war, so, right. or, or really as a really good thing. Remember all the protests? No more nukes, and it right. was just like everywhere. Okay, right. so that was important. But but then we started backsliding. Uh, the in two thousand two, the U.S pulled out of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. That was the one because the U.S. wanted to have a missile shield and you couldn't have one as long as there were was a treaty against anti-ballistic missiles. Right. Um, and, and that's that was, to prevent, right, missiles from coming in. Yeah, right. And, and you know, there's a whole Star Wars yeah, thing. Yeah, right. And it later turned out that it wasn't really so easy to erect an anti-ballistic missile defense anyway. Um, but the U.S. was out of that treaty. And then... Um, there are two remaining ones. So one is the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the one that Reagan and Gorbachev signed. On February 2nd, that is scheduled to expire. The U.S. announced last October that it was pulling out. It gives form notice on the 2nd, and then there's six months after that, it becomes a dead letter. Why does the U.S. want to pull back on it? A couple of reasons. The main stated reason is that Russia has been cheating. Russia has developed a missile that, uh, is a cruise missile that seems to be within that range of mm-hmm. 500, 5,500 kilometers. And uh, the Russians deny, they, they say that it doesn't actually have that range, but the Americans and, and NATO seem to think that Russians are lying. Right. So that's one reason. 
you know, why should only the U.S. be bound by this treaty? That's another reason is that China was never a signatory to the treaty. And uh, so China's free to do whatever it wants in that range of missile. The U.S. feels that it needs to have um, missiles in East Asia to offset China uh, and would be freed to do so if it were no longer bound by this treaty. What's interesting is, is that you need these treaties, right, to kind of keep everybody in check. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, without them, you kind of say, okay, let's have another new arms race, right? Everybody can kind of build up their arms as they see fit. Right. So there's no perfect treaty. Uh, There's (laughs) always going to be cheating. And you always worry that somehow the terms of the treaty locked in an advantage for one side or the other. Um, But- if you get rid of the treaty, then, as you said, there's nothing. And, you know, as as imperfect as the INF treaty is, it at least allows the U.S. to inspect Russian missile sites and has uh, you get some transparency there. That would completely go away. You know, I have to say I was struck by, too, um, one stat that you pointed out that, you, you know, even though we don't talk about this a lot as of late, you said that there are enough nukes to end human civilization in hours. Yeah. I mean, if something went wrong, part of the issue here is is not that, the, that Putin's suddenly going to, like, launch a surprise attack. What's more likely is a scenario would be they're skirmishing in the Donbass region of Ukraine or Crimea or, or or, you know, pick your spot, the Baltics, and it escalates into uh, shooting between NATO and Russia. Right. Uh, conventional weapons. And then it just escalates. takes on, uh, escalates kind of like inevitably. And sooner or later, let's let's imagine that Russia's losing and they, they're upset. Right. And they decide to just try to scare the Americans by saying, we're going to launch a nuke. And so the Americans back down. So that's one way it could end. Right. uh, With a total victory for Russia because they had a threat that the U.S. couldn't counter. Or the U.S. doesn't back down and then they actually do launch the nuke. And we have a nuclear war. I mean, that's obviously worst case scenario. It's not like this is likely to happen. The point is that a nuclear war is so, so bad that you don't want to be anywhere close to the realm of possibility on that. Right. It's funny, though, that you said that China is really the bigger long term threat to U.S. dominance because of its economic strength. But at the moment, it's Russia's very weakness that makes it so dangerous right now. Because nukes are, as we can see with examples of North Korea, Pakistan, these are fairly weak economically countries, but they have nukes. Right. You call and, it the Great Leveler. Yeah. Or they, or it's called the Great Leveler because they're not in, that expensive. <laughs> yeah. The Great Leveler in two senses. One is thing they level everything that they crash into. And the right. other is that they, they provide a, uh, a way for poor, weak countries to bring themselves up to the level of the stronger countries. And that's kind of why... That everybody wants them. That's why nuclear proliferation is such a danger. It's been interesting in the past. After the during the Cold War, it was the U.S. that was threatening to be the first user of nukes. The idea was, if the Warsaw Pact nations invaded Western Europe, that the U.S. would repel them with nukes because the U.S. was vastly undermanned. Right. Um, once the U.S. Uh, over the decades gained superior conventional power, then it was Russian conventional power was no longer a match. And the U.S. didn't need to threaten first use. Now it's the Russians because they're the ones on the weak side who were maybe threatened. That's economics editor Peter Coy. And I've got to say, when I was thinking about opening remarks this week, this was kind of the last topic that I thought Peter might be writing about. But nonetheless, you know, we thought we were done with the problems and the concerns about nuclear war decades ago. But we're not. We certainly are not. And it seems especially timely given that President Trump and Kim Jong-un are going to get together again, it appears, in Vietnam coming up. That standoff over nuclear arms is something that the world continues to watch uh, with a lot of trepidation. So, Carol, we learn at Bloomberg as journalists, names make news. Mm -hmm. And one of the best known names in investing, for sure, is Ray Dalio published a book a couple of years ago about his principles, and he runs the biggest and arguably most successful hedge fund in history. 
Not everyone's always buying into it, <laughs> no. uh, though. Pat Regnier is here with us. So bring us up to speed on uh, Ray Dalio. So um, he had a really good year in his uh, Pure Alpha 2 fund. Um, it was one of, the, one of the standouts in a generally pretty lousy year uh, for hedge funds. You know, this is one of these global macro funds where, you know, it goes, it can go just about everywhere. And it's right. all sort of, you know, the, the idea is, you know, it's going to go where the returns are uh, and not just give you sort of, you know, market performance, which is what people want from hedge funds. They um, pay a lot of money for that performance. They pay a lot of money for performance like that. Uh, but you don't always get it. Uh, uh, so, you know, his the longer term record over uh, kind of a five year period is a little more mediocre, particularly after you add in the fees, uh, which kind of brings us to an interesting story that we picked up on about a uh, retirement fund in uh, San Joaquin County, California, uh, that uh, decided to uh, fire the Pure Alpha Fund uh, because of the fees and the uh, what they saw as mediocre performance over a period, which I think kind of gets to sort of a dissatisfaction and a questioning some people are having about what are we doing with these hedge funds? About well, the entire asset yeah, class in a lot yeah. of ways, because, you know, and you alluded to sort of the rough year in 2018. You know, one of the pieces that I saw leading into this was six out of 10 hedge funds last year lost money. I mean, and you're paying a lot of money in order to lose that that doesn't seem to feel right that's right and you know the the idea about hedge funds is supposed to be that you know it's it's the thing that's going to make money in any kind of market that's why that word hedge is in there um but actually it's really hard i think for people to look at hedge funds and know like you know how are we even supposed to measure the performance of these things you know i kind of know when i'm looking at say an actively managed mutual fund that manager will usually be benchmarked against say the s&p 500 and if it's like one or two points below the s&p 500 i know that that person did not uh do their job. Hedge funds, you know, they'll always tell you, well, we are, you know, uh, offering you diversification. We're doing something that's completely different than the ups and downs on the market. We're just going to be delivering you, you know, uh, alpha is the bit of jargon. And that always, I think, leaves investors with a little bit of a head scratcher. It's like, so how am I actually supposed to judge you? You know, so classically, when hedge funds, you know, have a bad year, they say, well, no, but see, we're you're you're benchmarking us against the S and P five hundred, but that's not what we're here for. But you know, the money flows into hedge funds when they beat the S and P five hundred. Right. Well, what's kind of interesting? This San Joaquin County pension fund was two point nine billion in assets. I mean, it's it's kind of small fry in terms of what Bridgewater and Ray Dalio often deal with. But nonetheless, Ray Dalio, I mean, sent a long letter. I mean, he wanted to hold on to their money. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it is, uh, you know, th- these. Pension funds, they don't just make these decisions themselves. They often have pension consultants. So right. one of the constituencies that you're talking to when you're telling a pension fund board why you shouldn't let go of our fund is you're talking to the pension consultant behind that firm who may be making that decision for multiple pension funds over time. Um, you know, it's important to say that th- this fund has kept money in another Ray Dalio fund. Correct. Uh, you know, so so they, they, they haven't, you know... Run away completely. They, they haven't run away completely a, a, a different product that's you know less costly and has a slightly different strategy but um, it just sort of it, it sort of shows that you know people are kind of wondering what they're doing with with these strategies I just want to throw out one stat because what they figured out the pension fund ended up with about a 3.1 percent annualized return meaning that Bridgewater took more than half of the money it made for the county fund and I guess the years it was with it yeah I mean, I mean, that's a lot yeah right and that's where you see a consultant saying well maybe this doesn't make sense for you well and the fixed fee we should point out is 3.69 percent which for anyone who's looked at the fees on their mutual funds and things like that it feels exorbitant i mean just feels like a huge amount to pay. I, I i get grouchy paying you know 0.1 <laughs> percent right. right exactly right exactly. especially in this day and age where there are so many different options often similar options where you're not paying so many fees uh it is interesting has anybody else have we heard any other folks kind of pulling their money as a result of this you know i think we've just been hearing a drumbeat over the years of like you know hedge fund managers are seeing money flowing out and you know we've been seeing a lot of you know pretty high profile managers getting out of the business converting to family offices which right, is a right. fancy way of saying nobody really wants me to run their money anymore. I'm just going to run my own own money. Right, right, right. Exactly. (laughs) That's fine. I'll just run my own money. No, but I was curious, you know, if Dalio and Bridgewater, I mean, they're still, they're still holding on to most of their investors. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is, this is a, this is a colossus of, of the hedge fund industry. And, um, you know, he, he has a record that, you know, has impressed a lot of people. And, you know, as we've just said, he's coming off of a very good year. So probably things are going to, you know, mostly be getting better, not worse. That's 
editor Pat Regnier and Carol, you know, we love talking about hedge funds in part because they're so larger than life and no one's larger than life, candidly, than Ray Dalio. And certainly his outperformance over the years has been incredible. And he managed to do something that a majority of hedge funds didn't manage to do last year, which is make money. Which is why it's so interesting that we had this story about a small county in California pulling out some of its pension fund money. Jason, it was a corporate arrest heard around the world. Carlos Ghosn, it happened last November. He is, no doubt about it, kind of a larger than life and very admired auto executive who headed up an auto alliance that spanned continents and cultures. But he was arrested in November. He's still in jail. Well, and in many ways, he is the consummate global modern uh, executive. Matt Campbell in Singapore joins us now. He has the cover story in Business Week this week, which reveals new details and really helps help me understand yes. at least more than I ever understood about what's going on with Carlos Ghosn, with Nissan, with the biggest auto alliance out there. So, Matt, what did you find? Well, uh, this is a, a pretty astounding story, as as you referred to. Uh, this is you know a rare example of of a corporate scandal involving someone actually getting arrested, and and so far being confined to jail and, and perhaps facing a very stiff prison sentence. And so that is, that is of course, remarkable. But what's also remarkable about this is that it occurred uh, amid a, a pretty incredible power struggle that was going on within Nissan, uh, one in which uh, Carlos Ghosn, uh, who was the chairman until a couple months ago, uh, and uh, his successor, his protege in some ways, Hiroto Saikawa, were at odds, divided uh, for quite a while over a number of things, both uh, Nissan's day-to-day performance and and the broader future of the company and its relationship with Renault, uh, with which it's been in an alliance for about 20 years. So uh, this is obviously a story about alleged malfeasance, misconduct, uh, all of that. But it is also a story about a, a really, really fervent battle at the heart of one of the world's largest car makers. Take us inside how this investigation, this internal investigation came together initially that was ultimately handed over to the Japanese authorities. And this was happening effectively right under Carlos Ghosn's nose. Take us there. Midway through last year, spring of last year, May, June timeframe, roughly, uh, a Nissan executive called uh, Hari Nada, who had been uh, quite loyal to Carlos Ghosn, a longtime Nissan staffer, a lawyer by training, uh, began, uh, for reasons that, that are not totally clear, to have doubts about the propriety of some of the compensation arrangements for Mr. Ghosn. Uh, he approached a colleague for advice on, on what to him was, was an ethical dilemma. Uh, and this turned into gradually, bit by bit, uh, an internal investigation with Mr. Nada at the center of it. Uh, bit by bit, of course, this drew in some outside lawyers who were consulted for advice. They, in turn, with the permission of Mr. Nada and, and some other people he was working with, uh, went to Japanese prosecutors. And this then turned into a real criminal investigation. And by uh, the autumn of last year, uh, Hiroto Saikawa, Nissan's CEO, uh, was involved and was essentially helping to organize an operation with Japanese prosecutors to uh, arrest Mr. Ghosn uh, and someone named Greg Kelly, uh, who's another member of the Nissan board, a longtime ally of Carlos Ghosn. So uh, it's I keep saying this is an extraordinary story, but it really is. This is not something you see every day. No. Uh, when people talk about boardroom battles, boardroom coups, they're usually speaking much more metaphorically than we are in this case. Part of what was interesting in this story is the coordination that they underwent in order to get Greg Kelly from his home in Nashville, where he was not meant to leave, on a private jet to Japan, to a different airport from where Carlos Ghosn was arriving. Yes. So one of the complex things, and, and again, we're in a situation where Nissan is working uh, hand-in-glove with prosecutors in Japan to create a situation where both of these men could be arrested. And they had to do that at the same time. Neither lives in Japan. Uh, both are there only periodically. Therefore, you need to find a day when both are going to be in Japan at the same time. And this is also crucial, uh, could be arrested at the same moment so that neither could, for example, uh, flee to the embassy of, of a country in which they were a citizen or, or do something else that could uh, screw up this plan. So, so this had to be a, a really uh, covert and, and very complex operation to get them both to Tokyo on the same day uh, within a, actually about an hour or two of each other. And that is what Nissan managed to do, which is kind of incredible. And and they were uh, duly arrested and and taken into custody where Carlos Ghosn remains 
coming up to two and a half months later. You know, Matt, there's been some great headlines, you know, Gone owning five homes and, you know, talking about $80 million in kind of deferred compensation going to his retirement. Uh, Nissan kind of claiming he used the company as his personal piggy bank. You write, and I really feel like, you know, this is the right question to ask. Was this the spoils of corporate success or was it you know, that Gone transgressed legal and ethical boundaries. I mean, that's what the question is, correct, at this point? That, that is the question, Carol. And the other question is, what did Nissan know and when did they know it, uh, right. to use a, a famous phrase about another scandal? Uh, one of the things that, that I think remains somewhat unclear in this whole story is how many people at Nissan knew about these arrangements? Uh, were they signed off? How were they signed off? And what is what was the illicit part relative to Nissan? We know what the prosecutors are accusing Carlos Ghosn of doing, uh, but there are questions of where where were Nissan's own processes produced, or or did Carlos Ghosn do things uh, without the permission of others at Nissan, or things that he shouldn't have been doing per Nissan's governance? Those are all still open questions. Mm. Uh, there are a, a lot of allegations going back and forth in all directions, uh, and it will be very interesting to see how the how the legal process plays out. But does it really matter? I mean, Japanese courts, they tend to find the individual guilty, right, ultimately? That's true. And there are, uh, there are various ways to look at the statistics, but, but they all are pretty much in agreement that in Japan, if you are charged with a crime, uh, you are almost certainly going to be convicted. The number of people who are not convicted is incredibly tiny. That said, uh, Carlos Ghosn is clearly not a typical defendant uh, mm-hmm. in his financial resources, uh, in his apparent determination to fight these charges. You know, in Japan, uh, the expected thing is that you confess, uh, and that is how the system is designed to operate, and that is, to some extent, how criminal defense lawyers are used to operating, is to have clients who confess and, and they be they would then be coached to confess in a, in a less damaging way. Uh, Carlos Ghosn is, has made it quite clear he doesn't plan to do that. Uh, so what we're going to have is, uh, you know, if not the trial of the century, uh, certainly uh, the trial of the last few years uh, unfolding in Tokyo at some point over the next 6 to 12 months. Meanwhile, you have the fate of the largest global car alliance hanging in the balance. And that was ultimately at the root of this disagreement between the two top executives at Nissan. What happens from here? You have the French government obviously still holding a big stake here. What's next? Well, that's a very good question, Jason. Uh, Renault-Nissan, as you say, uh, is is an alliance between these two very large car companies that uh, by some measures is the largest car manufacturer in the world. Uh, Renault-Nissan claim that they are. Uh, Volkswagen would, would dispute that. Uh, but this is a gigantic enterprise by any stretch, and it's a very global enterprise, which is something that uh, it really has on almost every other car company. Uh, this is uh, an, or- a, a, an alliance that has a significant leg in China, significant leg in Russia, Japan, France. Nissan has a large business in the United States. It is gigantic, but there have been tensions uh, for the last 20 years uh, since the alliance was first created around the balance between France and Japan. Uh, This alliance was born in a situation where Nissan was rescued by Renault, uh, but here we are two decades later, and and Nissan is the larger and, by many measures, more profitable company. So uh, there is an issue about who is the leading partner. Are they equal partners? Mm. How does the governance work if they are equal partners? Uh, And all of the, in addition to all the big strategic decisions, the many thousands of day-to-day decisions that have to occur all the time. Two other things that actually happened this week, right? We had the SEC saying that it is investigating now Nissan uh, in terms of some of uh, whether or not the company accurately disclosed uh, executive pay. And then at the same time, it came out that French President Macron had talked to uh, Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, saying he's worried about Gon, you know, being in jail so so long and worried about the conditions in jail. So, I mean, we're starting to get different parties kind of also uh, contribute to what's going on here. That's right, Carol. The SEC news is is really interesting because they are, uh, we we reported and and others have also reported that uh, the SEC is looking into whether Nissan's pay disclosures were accurate, uh, whether uh, controls on executive compensation uh, were in place in the way that they should have been. This goes right to the heart of what Carlos Ghosn is accused of, but it also goes to the question of uh, where were Nissan's responsibilities, where uh, did Nissan's governance fail 
where did it uh, know things and, and not disclose them, or where uh, did it not know things that perhaps it should have known? So that's going to be really interesting as, as these questions continue to be asked by the SEC. On the Macron front, I think he is uh, speaking to something that many of us have, have thought about following this story over the last several weeks uh, about the Japanese justice system, which mm -hmm. is that it's very tough. Uh, it is uh, run along lines that are very unfamiliar uh, to those of us in the West. Uh, one small example, not small if you're a defendant, uh, is that you were interrogated without the presence of a lawyer. That is totally standard, and that has been the situation for Mr. Gohn, as it is for every other uh, criminal suspect in Japan. So there is uh, some real concern out there about the Japanese system, and, and I think we're all going to see uh, exactly how the Japanese system works as this case continues to unfold. That's reporter Matthew Campbell. We caught up with him in Singapore. He has been following this story. I think it was a month-long investigation into writing what really went on when it came to Carlos Ghosn being arrested by Japanese authorities and put in jail. And it really brings to the fore a number of characters that I think were unknown to mm -hmm. a lot of people. We know the broad strokes, but the details make it that much more complicated. Carol, on our daily radio show, and of course you can hear that Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time here on Bloomberg, we spoke with Flash Boy, Michael Lewis coined the term Brad Katsuyama about the cost of providing market data. He's taken another bold stance. Here's that conversation. Tell me something good. Or just tell me what it costs your customers. Tell me something. Kind of, give me something. I'm just asking for some information. And that leads us to our next guest actually sent the SEC a letter laying out its costs to customers, telling them a lot in a challenge, you might say, to other stock exchange to provide more transparency and information. For more on this mission, let's go to the source. Brad Katsuyama, he is co-founder, CEO at IEX. Tell me about this letter you sent to the SEC. What was it? So the industry for a long time has been focused on the utility services that exchanges provide. So think of market data, industry sends in orders, the exchanges rebroadcast those orders back to the market. Think of things like connectivity. You want you need to get that information. You have to plug cables into the exchange, et cetera. And these costs have been escalating over time, so much so that you know the brokers have fire, filed lawsuits. They've signed petitions. They've written letters to the SEC. And 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 this administration of the SEC smartly has stepped in, has stopped a couple of the price hikes, and has convened the industry asking for more information. And and ultimately. Um, in our belief, and I think the paper lays it out pretty clearly, we think that the stock exchanges, the old guard stock exchanges, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, uh, the CBOE, have been misleading the SEC because in their filings they say these are fair prices. These are reasonable prices. They're competitive. NASDAQ points at New York. New York points at NASDAQ. CBO points at NASDAQ. But do they point out the pricing? No, they point out what each other are charging and they're all charging enormous fees. They never talk about what it actually costs them to produce this. So I think that the SEC and the industry has always not have the disclosures they needed to decide. Are these prices fair or are they a byproduct of a monopoly? So in other right. words- Well, and go ahead. I was just gonna say, so in other words, we don't know the cost to produce it. We don't know the cost that they're charging. We do know the cost they're charging. But we don't know the cost to produce. So we don't have an idea of the margin, exactly. the markup here. Exactly, and, and so from our standpoint, again, we are a different type of stock exchange. We, we started IEX to be different, to right. challenge this, the idea that exchanges are selling advantages to the highest bidders, that they're paying rebates for order flow. And then this last piece, that they're overcharging the industry for utility services. Our report shows that some products, we're talking 4,000% markups. Wow. That is not fair or reasonable or competitive. And frankly, it is, it is a symbol of, of a monopoly. There's no alternative to NASDAQ market data being sold by NASDAQ. There just isn't. Um, everyone has to pay that price if they want to get best execution for their clients. Um, and I think that ultimately the reason it's gone on for so long is an exchange needed to provide this disclosure. And the three exchanges that operate, 12 exchanges between them, have, they all play the same game. No one's been willing to kind of step across the line. And, and for us, this was... Um, this was the right thing to do. Well, and it does feel like it's become easier to do this given the consolidation, right? That you, ha that yes. you have a small number of players who now, to right. your point, ultimately own a huge chunk of the overall market. Yeah, so, so it's 12 exchanges owned by three exchange families. And I saw the other day an interview where you know, a CEO of an exchange said, well, we're only 20% market share. Well, that's for trading. You're 100% market share for your own market data product. Right. So it's, it's, they conflate topics, they mislead, they produce statistics that are irrelevant, but ultimately disclose the costs and 
and let's have a real discussion. Okay, devil's advocate a little bit here, but um, if it's so egregious, you say some brokers have sued and fought back. If they're fighting back enough and enough of the bigger Wall Street houses are fighting back, ultimately, won't that lead to a change? So I guess my point is, are enough of people fighting back that it bothers them enough to fight back? Well, I think the exchanges have had two defenses. One is the fact that the SEC has approved the changes. But in the filings, they're representing that it's fair and reasonable. And my guess is that the SEC felt like those representations were, were correct without ever understanding costs. But the second piece is the brokers... But this is what the SEC does. They're supposed to understand this, right? So are, they, are you saying that they're not really doing their homework and really investigating all of this? My sense is that the new administration of the SEC has taken the closest look at this. They stopped two fee increases. They asked the exchanges to re-justify 400 other uh, price increases and... They are asking the industry for transparency and disclosures to help them do their job. And that's exactly what we provided for them. So I think the timing is right. Um, the industry badly wants a change. The lawsuits are a good example of that. Um, and an exchange needed to step forward. And, and the, other, the other exchanges, again, they, they are for-profit companies with quarterly earnings to hit. These are, these are guaranteed revenues every quarter. Right. And all you have to do is turn a couple dials and make more money it's hard. Once you start doing that, it's hard to stop doing that. And our data and, and connectivity has been free from the very beginning. We don't rely on that revenue source. Um, and as a result, I think we were in a position to be the one exchange to speak out against this. That's Brad Katsuyama, the founder and CEO of IEX. And man, he comes in hot. He does indeed. And I think slowly but surely he is kind of chipping away at the way we have been trading securities at the exchanges for decades. And as we talked about with him, I do feel like we're at this interesting moment yeah. where there are big questions about who's paying whom, who's in charge of what. And he is right at the center of posing those questions. And you kind of can't fight him because he's really all about transparency. You got to love it. So, Jason, it's set out to go after YouTube and also really linear TV. We're talking about Facebook Watch, but I have to be quite honest. I was reading the story. And I'm like, what is Facebook Watch? Yeah, a lot of people are going to read this and say, Facebook what? Yeah, Facebook what? <laughs> Sarah Fryer joins us from San Francisco to tell us about this experiment mm -hmm. of sorts that hasn't gone the way that maybe Mark Zuckerberg envisioned there at Facebook. So what gives, Sarah? So basically, Facebook Watch was conceived to be the thing that would bring people into this sort of lean back intentional experience the way they have when they're watching TV or YouTube or Netflix. They pick a show, they watch it, they spend more time in front of Facebook. It hasn't really worked out that way. It's, it's been something that has been very much an afterthought for users. There's this persistent red dot on your Facebook around this TV. People don't even know what that is or what it means. When they click it, they get just really confused in a sea of video. Um, it, it's not really working out for Facebook the way that they hoped it would. Well, what did they hope and why are they doing it? What's the mission here? So the craziest thing I learned in reporting out this story is that back in 2016, Facebook was very proud of its 45 minutes a day on average that it was getting from its users. But those 45 minutes are being segmented into, on average, less than 90 second sessions. So people were looking at Facebook when they were standing in line, on the toilet, you know, things in their, the Facebook had managed to make a gigantic advertising business out of those little slices of your day that really you're not spending doing anything else. What Facebook needed to do in order to continue to grow was move into the parts of your day that are a little more planned out. The time that you're sitting down watching TV is a really good place to start. Facebook thought that it could go out and buy a lot of high quality video and that people would just go watch it. But so far, they haven't had a hit. They haven't even had a lot of shows that, that any of us have heard of. I, I, I love that you've never heard of Facebook Watch. You're not alone. Um, this is something that has really kind of faltered, even though they've spent more than a billion dollars on trying to get content for it. And so as you talk to people, Sarah, is this a discoverability issue? Is this an issue where this just isn't what people want to see when they go to Facebook? What's the, what's the biggest uh, sort of gating factor here? I really think that it's 
the latter. When people go to Facebook, they're in a passive consumption experience. They're going through, they want to be entertained by their newsfeed. They want to see what's happening and then you'll want with their day. They don't want to just hang out there and, and consume video there. Now that could change. We've seen, you know, we didn't think of Amazon as a place to watch video, but now I go watch shows on Prime. You didn't think of, of necessarily that you would be watching full shows on YouTube, but some people spend hours of their time on YouTube every day. So it can change, but so far, the best they have made, I mean, they're buying up some canceled shows from from MTV and Comcast Watch. I mean, these are, these are not maybe the, maybe they're not making really good content decisions, but I think it's more just not a native place for people to create content. Well, that there isn't really this experience on Facebook that you want to create something to, that the public will see. Well, and it's interesting you bring that up, sort of the relationship that different people have with different media or different platforms here, because, you know, I think about the teenagers in my house are very willing to watch a lot of YouTube videos at length. <laughs> and yet, if I suggested that they look at a video on Facebook, they would look at me like I have three heads about <laughs> that specifically. They do that normally. But uh, so it does feel like there's a demographic problem here too, right? Well, Facebook has had a lot of trouble getting a younger audience to use Facebook. And when you look at the content decisions they've made for Watch, it's not really entirely clear what they're going for. Mm. They have sports, they have reality TV, they have teen influencers doing talk shows. I mean, it's, it's really kind of grab and go. And for me as the consumer, when I click on that little persistent, annoying red <laughs> dot to go to Facebook Watch, I, I'm not really sure what it's supposed to be for me. And honestly, if Facebook does figure it out, then it can be a really great experience for for the user and the advertiser because they'll have information on what you want to watch intentionally. I don't know about you, but I get really distracted when I'm scrolling through my newsfeed. I love watching the the cooking videos, right? I'll <laughs> pause and look at those because they just capture my eye. I don't even like cake, but I'll spend 30 seconds looking at the cake decorating video. Um, Facebook Watch is more supposed to be about the thing that you're going to intentionally look at. So I really want to watch Jason's show on Facebook Watch, so I'll click there and intend to go see it, and that gives you better information for advertisers. Um, ha it hasn't yeah. really worked, and it's also the advertising model is is kind right. of haphazard well, as well. Dig into that. First of all, I love that you love to watch cake videos. You know, we're learning something new about Sour Fire. <laughs> Always fun. But what's interesting too is you put you you know you you mentioned experience, right? And you kind of wonder what was Facebook's intentions in terms of the experience because it's not a fun one when you click on that little red dot. Zuckerberg, when this started in 2016, he was very insistent that there be no pre-roll advertising. That's the kind of advertising you see on YouTube that happens before your video even starts. And I don't know about you, but I pretty much just look at the corner and try yes. to wait for the seconds to skip time out <laughs> so I can click. Um, that's something he didn't want for Facebook Watch, um, but it was really hard to get to their advertising projections without something like that. They started with a kind of advertising called mid-roll, which interrupts your video in the middle. Now they're starting to move into more modes of money making. They have little banner ads at the bottom of the video in some cases. Sometimes they have pre-roll for certain videos. They're also trying to do branded content where advertisers pay for a branded video and some kind of subscription services. So there are a whole lot of ways. Ultimately, the goal for Facebook is to get Facebook Watch to a, a level of money making that the content creators on Watch will want to just create content without being paid by Facebook up front. So they'll say, I have a big enough audience right. on Facebook that I don't even have to get their check ahead of time to know that I want to invest in this. So far, we're very far from that future that they're hoping for. And that's the point. I mean, Facebook's pretty much signed up everybody that they can or that's out there. I mean, and that's impressive alone. But now they've got to get people to really kind of watch longer. And that's what they're going after because that's when you get another chunk of the advertising pie. And if you are a content creator on Facebook Watch, are you really going to go from being paid by Facebook to create this content 
to doing it for free because mm. you're going to get enough advertising revenue, that's going to be a really painful transition. That's technology reporter Sarah Fryer. And we caught up with her, of course, about Facebook Watch. And, you know, it's kind of fascinating. Facebook, it's ubiquitous in terms of the users that it has signed up around the world. But when it comes to Facebook Watch, it's really having a difficult time with it. And there was a lot of promise around this. Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. spent a lot of money to get it off the ground, to get some of that original content, just not making a dent. And many people say they can't even find it. Yeah, exactly. It's a problem. So, Carol, I feel like every day we're getting ready for our daily radio show. Yes. And there we are, like, hoovering up something at our desk. We're not alone. No. Everybody, especially in cities like New York, maybe they're going to pick it up or increasingly they're having it delivered. It has changed the entire fabric of how restaurants have to run. A really good story in Business Week this week about this. Which brings us to our reporter, Liz Dunn, to tell us what's going on. So you wrote a story about Dig In. Who are they? So Dig In is a fast, casual restaurant um, based in New York. It has 26 restaurants, so it's very popular in New York. Um, They've expanded to Boston as well. And they serve that sort of um, veggie-focused grain bowl salad type of thing that everybody is doing these days. You you walk up and you assemble your, you know, you get a little bit of, of grain, a little bit of chicken, a little bit of vegetable. You bring it back to your desk and that's your lunch. Um, and they have been doing more and more of their meals for delivery over the years. And now in some locations, as many as 30 percent of sales go to delivery. And it's good, but it's also bad. Yeah, it's good because, you know, a lot of that revenue is revenue they wouldn't have otherwise had, but it also is operationally really difficult. And the profitability is not as good as in-store meals. We'll explain that a little bit. Yeah. So if you're ordering through, let's say, Uber Eats or um, Grubhub or any of these third-party marketplaces, they charge you usually a delivery fee, but they also charge the restaurant a, a huge portion of the revenue of the meal. So sometimes 20 or 30 percent of that grain bowl or salad will actually be going to Uber Eats. So that's pretty difficult in a business where the margins are already very tight. So the economics are one thing, and then the production of it. And that was the part that, candidly, I had never really thought about until I read your story, which is, it is really hard to do. And you think about the transportation of this meal, and by the time you get it, the temperatures are all out of whack, and it is not anything close to what you would get if you were sitting there eating it in a restaurant. Yeah, I went and visited a dig-in at a peak time, which was lunchtime on, I think it was a Tuesday. And this place was just going... I mean, it was as packed as you could imagine. They had about 10 employees running around trying to get these things together. And they said that right now, 60 or 90 minutes can pass between when you order and when you have it delivered because they just they can only cook the food so fast. Right. But it's only going to get worse. I mean, I think there's a Morgan Stanley stat that you guys have in there and just talking about how digital delivery is going to be a bigger and bigger piece of the overall kind of restaurant space. Yeah, by 2022, they're saying it may be 10% of all restaurant sales. And you have to remember that that's every restaurant everywhere. So when you're talking about a counter service lunch place, it could be closer to 25, 30, maybe even 40% of sales. So what's a place like Diggin doing, right? Because they've got to figure it out. Yeah, Diggin has really um, been really proactive with how they're thinking about delivery. They have realized this isn't going to go away. And so they have to change the way they operate in order to you know, make this a better experience for guests and also make it more profitable for them. Well, and one of the things that they're doing that you write about is this idea of essentially gaming out the temperature of the food and cooking it in a way and with and placing it with different foods so that it essentially keeps cooking as it's being delivered. Yeah, I mean, it's a little kitchen geekery. They've hired an MIT uh, civil engineering guy to handle the operation side, and they've got a chef that's been working full-time for 18 months just to sort of figure out how do you cook food that gets possibly better as it travels. And so it stays warm. If it's supposed to be warm, it stays cold. If it's supposed to be cold and the temperatures and textures are all really what they should be. I got to say that in reading uh, the story, we got a draft of it uh, earlier in the week and some of the editors like, okay, but what does this mean for like fish and chicken? Like, is this safe? I mean, I guess yeah, I know. it out, right? You know, a lot of people, um, a lot of people mentioned that. So chicken, I think what you're referring to is that with fish, when they are cooking a piece of fish that's going to be going out for yeah. delivery, their new system is that they will cook it um, not quite to where they are hoping you'll eat it temperature-wise and then put it on like a very hot puree, which then over time transfers its heat and the fish keeps cooking. So it's important to know that they, the temperature that they are cooking it to is still safe. It's not maybe 
the temperature you want to eat your salmon at, but you're right. not going to risk getting sick. And they wouldn't do that with chicken. And I will say, it's what really accomplished chefs do right often, right? They'll yeah. put something out and they like, they'll keep it either in the dish or in the foil or whatever because it keeps on cooking, right? And they, they factor that in. Yeah, it's really just this new idea of thinking about delivery as a really separate and important uh, yeah. revenue stream where you're really going to tailor your operations specifically to that part of the business instead of just sort of doing what you already do. That's reporter Liz Dunn. And I have to say, Carol, when I first started reading this story, I thought, okay, well, we'll see where this goes. (laughs) I was riveted because I really love understanding how things are put together. And especially here in New York, what a cottage industry, beyond a cottage industry, just getting your food delivered. Yeah, it's great to hear in her story, too, how she kind of went there at the peak time, you know, lunchtime to really figure out how it gets done. And it's not easy getting all those deliveries out. Well, and that detail about like your salmon continuing to cook based on the puree that's underneath it, like, what? Yeah, exactly. So, Carol, this week we had the opportunity to fly down to Atlanta ahead of the Super Bowl, broadcasting from Radio Row. Had the opportunity to talk to some pretty amazing folks. We did indeed, Jason. And in this segment, we highlight a pair of our favorite conversations about the big game and the business of the National Football League. Security top of mind, obviously, in a big event like this. We chatted with a couple guys working hard to keep Atlanta safe this weekend. Yes, indeed. There are so many things going on in Atlanta to make sure everything goes smoothly at the big game this week and the Super Bowl, and that includes, of course, security. We have uh, two perfect people to talk to about that. The former New York City Police Commissioner, Boston Police Commissioner, Executive Chairman at Teneo, Bill Bratton, is with us here in Atlanta, along with Mike Mayorana. He is Senior Vice President of the uh, Public Sector over at Verizon, based in Virginia, but both in Atlanta. Welcome. Great to be with you. So talk to us about security. I mean, what does a big game like this have to think about when it comes to making sure that everybody who attends the game is secure, Bill? You have to think about everything. (laughs) Just listening to the myriad of things they have to be involved with, the hundreds of events that have to be policed, the crowd flows, uh, security issues ranging from just that crowd flows on up to traffic. Uh, Certainly the terrorism issues are always of concern, but good news this year, as in previous years, uh, no threats uh, that they were aware of directed against the event. Good news. And then to support all of that, and that's what I'm down here for working with Verizon, Everything is very dependent on communications right. that won't fail. And so Michael, uh, my partner for the last uh, year and a half that, uh, <laughs> on this issue of working with Verizon on ensuring public safety communications. So Mike, tell us about that because obviously you know, we're in a different world than we were, say, 9-11. We're in a different world than we were at very close to home here in 1996 where there was obviously a notable uh, incident very, very close to where uh, we're sitting. How does communications work today in an event like that? So Verizon has a decade's uh, worth of experience in supporting public safety first responders. And over the years, they've become more and more dependent on commercial technology, just like you and I use. Uh, The 4G LTE network and the features and functionality on that network, uh, priority services, preemption services, Um, having a private core to be able to segregate traffic versus the consumer traffic is all helping uh, improve comms for first responders that are using smartphones, iPhones, Androids. So what Verizon does for an event like this, um, we've invested $97 million here in Atlanta in the past year to enhance coverage and capacity Mm. in in venues outside at the Super Bowl, Uh, stadium and um, we've got temporary assets. With the technology that you see today in place, um, small cells um, scattered all across the city uh, to improve uh, capacity. Because you have two things you have to think about. I think about the people who are attending the game, right? Yes. We want to make sure that their experience is really cool. Right. They can share it with, you know, friends and family and all that good stuff. Fantasy so that's sports. One thing, and right? That's a big part of this game. Carol's right? thinking about tweeting <laughs> right now. No, yeah. but it's such a big part of the experience. And then you've got making sure everything's secure so that those right. first responders, right. God forbid something goes yeah. wrong, you've got to make sure that they can communicate Well, one clearly. of the things Verizon uh, has done when you ask what's changed over time that uh, as recently as the horrific events on 9-11, Back then, the concern was about security of voice communication, radio, phones. Now it's a lot about the data transmission, transmission of video. So the world and the 
capacity need as well as the volume has changed dramatically. Every one of those 100,000 people in the stadium, every one of the million people in the area are going to be walking around with a smartphone. Right. And when there's a touchdown scored, we're all <laughs> going to be on the phone. And that Verizon has really moved in, as Mike was saying. Uh, they put in 350 miles of uh, uh, fiber uh, optic cable. They've got 300, what they call small cells, which effectively are boosters. So in certain areas, like where we're sitting here, with all that's going on here, yeah. they have small cells that ensure that you guys don't go down in the middle of a broadcast. The issue uh, from the public safety perspective is prioritization, preemption, and collaboration. All those public safety agencies all have to have the ability to talk with each other, radio, phone, data, video. They also have to have, normally, interoperability without interruption, but if there were to be an emergency that required effectively more resources, more use, they need to have priority over everybody else. And if necessary, in the event of a significant catastrophe, preemption, the ability to shut others down. So think of it as a highway, that eight-lane highway. Yeah. They need an HOV lane. Right. And in some instances, like they need the whole like highway. It, right. And so what Verizon has been able to build and is continuing to build out for uh, public safety in America is those capabilities, that capacity to ensure collaboration, collaboration that can count on preemption and prioritization. All right, before we let both of you go, got to get a prediction on uh, Sunday. You're going to be back uh, home in New York. I have a uh, good guess here. I think we know where you're going, <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to make you say <laughs> it on air. Did, 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 did you hear my accent? <laughs> I was just going to say, I love your accent. Naturally, go Pats. <laughs> well, you did work in Los Angeles for a while. I don't know. Okay, just my, my, my family uh, maniacs there about you go. The, the Pats. And you're going to be watching from home? Uh, my sister's living in uh, Las Vegas with a partner. They got the big blow-up Pats balloons outside. They're <laughs> <laughs> not shy. Mike, who you like? And I came in uh, a Ravens fan. Now, we, we were hoping the Ravens would get there. I'm a Maryland guy, but uh, I'm going for the Patriots. The bottom line is there's Smart a... Smart man. <laughs> I, Bill is a good friend, but they've got a tradition of excellence, and you've got to respect them. So that was former New York City Police Commissioner, former Boston Police Commissioner, and Executive Chairman at Teneo, of course, Bill Bratton, along with Mike Majorana. He is Senior VP of Public Sector at Verizon. And it's great to catch up with them, especially Commissioner Bratton, because he obviously thinks about security yes. very holistically, but that communications piece, as you rightly pointed out in that conversation, it has to do with the first responders, of course, but also has to do with all of us trying to cope with everything that's going on in the moment. It's a massive organization to make sure everything is set. Great stuff from them. Because he had high hopes. He had high hopes. He had and so we're joined for the end of our show to wrap it up with a really important topic here. And it, it really is underneath a lot of what a lot of the players, yes. uh, a lot of the companies here are, are talking about. There is a program called Inspire Change. It's an, an initiative grant for social justice. And it's a partnership between the NFL and Operation Hope. John Hope Bryant is here with us. He is the founder and chief executive officer of Operation Hope. John, great to have you here with us. Honored to be with you. Thanks for having me. So we've been talking a lot about the economy. We do it uh, every day. Yep. You are looking at it from the perspective of people who are struggling. And uh, tell us how economic inequality is manifesting itself and what we can do about it. Well, I'm actually talking about from the perspective of those who actually are driving the economy and get little credit for it. Yeah. Uh, who also never got the memo on free enterprise and capitalism and economics and opportunity. So they're spending all the money, but they don't own any of the assets. Yeah. They're not the clients of Rob here yet, but they need to be because startup, shoot up, small business and entrepreneurship is where all job growth comes from in this country. And every big business was, that was once a small one. You know, Goldman Sachs was a guy named Goldman and a guy named Sachs. Yeah. And Walmart was Sam Walton with the pickup truck and storefront and a high school education. So we think that, that this issue of social justice or injustice, the driver underneath that is, is economic equality. So you need an inclusive economy. So I've created the Starbucks of financial inclusion, the private banker to the working poor, the struggling class, the teetering middle class. That's 70% of Americans living from paycheck to paycheck. The folks, the federal workers, I was just going to say, right, yeah. it was front and center as a result of the government shutdown that, that we realized these so many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. They had two weeks of pay. Right. And then they were on the ropes. Right. And that's that's most people who have too much month at the end of their money. How do we break this cycle? Because I feel like we are <coughs> at a, a point in our history, U.S. history, where... You have so many, or a smaller group of really, really wealthy people getting wealthier, yep. and then you have 
poor people and you have not a lot in the middle. Already a key element of the upcoming presidential yep. campaign. Yep. And we don't have time for this, but it's some way, in some ways what drove the last campaign yep. were my poor white friends in rural America who felt like they were invisible for 50 years after right. the Industrial Revolution. So and once again, the color was not black, white, red, brown, and yellow. It was green, currency, yeah. economics. <laughs> so the issue when, main, when mainstream America has a headache, black folks have pneumonia. So if it's bad for my friend Rob, it's really bad for my friend, you know, uh, 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 Gerald. So this initiative moves, I'm going to get real straight here. We move credit scores 120 points in 24 months. Wow. Nothing changes your life more than God or love than moving your credit score 120 points. How do you I, do it? We're, well, we, we get in. So the banker can't tell you when they see you that you're not going to be declined for that loan. They must, by law, for fear of being sued, for discrimination, take the application. We're sitting 10 feet from the banker all across this country, 24 states. They work for me, not the banker. So my people can say, girl, it looks like the, <laughs> the credit report looks like a bus accident. Yeah. What's that? Oh, I don't know what that is. That's called an error. Okay. The, credit, the, the, the law is that the credit bureaus can't confirm that within 30 days. They must remove it. When we challenge that to the credit bureaus, and most people have an error on their credit report, they must remove it if they can't confirm it. That's a 30-point pop on your credit score. So, so if you have a 580 credit score, I've just moved you to six, 610. What's now happening to your self-esteem? Your confidence, your belief in yourself, it's all going up. Your trust in the system. Now you have a, a default. You, you, you have a charge-off, right? You didn't pay your phone bill and you got divorced 10 years ago. $1,000 phone bill sold to three different insurance companies, the phone companies, then to Joe's finance company. He bought it for five cents on the dollar. He bought it for 50 bucks. You don't know that. It's still showing $1,000. My people do. We call Joe's finance company. We have Joe here. Hey, hey, I'm looking for her or looking for jo jo Joette. Well, she's looking for you. Yeah. We want to buy that debt, 100 it, bucks. I so we, that goes up another 30 points. My point is we get you to the point where we can get you right. to say yes. And now all of a sudden you're in the free enterprise system. Half of black Americans don't have a credit score above 620. Let that's that crazy. sink in. That's John Hope Bryant, the CEO and chairman of Operation Hope. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily show via podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It's on newsstands now. And also download the Bloomberg Business Week app for all the Bloomberg Business Week stories. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.